Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, is PlayStation Plus worth the monthly subscription? And could it be the future of gaming? Plus, I'll chat with the Irish startups looking to take pressure off the electricity grid and help get drivers from A to B in a safer manner. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Now, I'm sure you're singing along with that wonderful number by Jaden Smith. That is I'm Ready, which is one of the original songs from Spider-Man Miles Morales. And that is just one of the many titles you'll find as part of the PlayStation Plus membership. It launched here in Ireland on June 23rd and I've been getting to grips with it, as has John Riley, editor of TheEffect.net, who joins me now. Um, John, before we talk through the wealth of titles available at Gamers Fingertips, just remind us the, the thought process behind PlayStation Plus. PlayStation Plus has kind of been around the block for quite a long time now, um, you know, it's been PlayStation's kind of online offering and every month then you'd be given maybe two or three titles um, as a kind of a deal sweetener. Um, it would let people play online, as I said, kind of competitively. So now you know, Xbox Game Pass then came out about 2017 and that's really kind of been the, the poster child for for want of a better, you know, subscription service on consoles. So this new PlayStation Plus, which is kind of a relaunch more so than a completely new product, um, is kind of Sony's efforts to compete with with game with kind of Microsoft's own Game Pass offering. So it's you know the PlayStation Plus that players have been used to for years is still there as such, but it's been rebranded or been added to a kind of a category of tiers now that gamers can select from. So it's it's I wish it was more straightforward, but it, it's not that it's overly complicated either. But it's there's different tiers at different price points that offer different things to PlayStation gamers. Um, to, it depends on how much you want to get out of it, really. Yeah, and we've spoken about this before, but let's just talk through it again briefly because as you mentioned there, there are different tiers and for those who are completely new to this concept, it's not a million miles away from Netflix in that you can get your standard plan, you can get your mid plan and then you can get your top tier plan and with each top, with with each tier, with every step forward you take, you get more stuff. So just start with the basic plan. How much is it and what do you get for your money? Yeah, so the, as this, there's three tiers available here um, for this new PlayStation Plus offering. So for the basic plan, which is called the, Play, the PlayStation Plus Essential, um, that's $8.99 a month. Or they've been really kind of competitive in the way they price this. If you go yearly, you can get it for just $59.99. So there's quite a saving to be made there if you just sign up for the year rather than the month. I know it's you know it's, it's strategic by, by PlayStation to do that, to lock people in for a year, but you really are making quite the saving. So this PlayStation Plus Essential, basically, basically the entry tier is what PlayStation Plus was before it became amalgamated as this new kind of overall offering. So 
with this one, you're getting the same benefits of the original PlayStation Plus. You get access to online multiplayer. You get your cloud storage for your saves if you're kind of jumping between consoles. And then you get your monthly games, maybe two or three games a month for free on the service. So that's a nice little offering, as I said, $8.99 or $59.99. Gamers that had PlayStation Plus previously will know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the exact same offering, basically. The annual price is pretty good, particularly when you look at how much it costs to buy a new game right now. So if you were thinking about it, like when you look at the list of titles that you're getting and all the benefits that you've just listed out for 60 quid for an entire year, that is pretty good. Yeah, no, it really is like like it was always pretty good value and every month when they bring out those free games for you to download and play as part of your subscription some of them were, were stinkers but some of the times you get some really really strong titles and they launched what was called the playstation plus collection back when the ps5 launched in 2020 which was a really good offering for playstation plus subscribers and you got a, a, a wide breadth of kind of really first party triple a titles not as good as xbox where you get your day one launches like forza and halo and whatever else but still some really strong strong you know world-class uh, narrative-led games be it you know the god of wars or you know more recently horizon for a bit or zero dawn and that so you know to start yes it was good value and it still is good value but moving on to these new tiers this there's the new the, the, so a step up is playstation plus extra so that goes up to 13.99 a month or yearly again better value for 99.99 a month so basically 100 euro a year sorry should i say for 100 euro a year or 99.99 not only do you get everything from playstation plus essential but you also get a huge back catalog of, of additional ps4 and even ps5 titles for you to download and play so you're getting titles such as returnal which only came out last year and got rave reviews one of the best titles on ps5 exclusively so that's kind of part of that bundle you get uh, Ghost of Tsushima Director's Cut, you're getting um, Death Stranding, you're getting both Spider-Man games. Yeah, this now really is where the value really starts to shine for just ninety nine ninety nine a month or a year again, sorry, where you know, you're getting these titles are 80 quid a pop on their own. So for another 20 quid for, for the year, for the yearly plan, you're getting a huge selection of PS4 and PS5 titles, along with some other kind of features as well. So it's it's a really good offering for the extra for the extra package. Yeah, and again, 100 quid, it's a lot of money. It's not to be sniffed at in terms of paying that out as a lump sum. But for 14 quid a month, say if you had a few weeks uh, of annual leave coming up or if you knew that you just wanted to sit down for a few weekends and get the value out of it, you could just pay 14 quid for two months and blast through those very expensive titles that you just mentioned. Yeah, got like really, if you have the time and you 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 have the you put fourteen euro down for the month and you have two whole weeks, you're able to stick it, get you know get stuck into gaming. Yeah, you've got some amazing titles there. They're going to be they're big titles, so they'll take quite a time to finish. But yes, if you have the time, the value for money is absolutely insane, really, for that extra title for that extra tier. So you seem very impressed by that mid tier. So what could you possibly add on to that to make it worth even more money? Yeah, so the final tier and the most expensive is the PlayStation Plus Premium. So this is coming in at $16.99 a month, or as I've always said, the yearly plan. There is quarterly plans there, which kind of give a bit of value too. But then the yearly plan comes in at just, well, I just, again, it's €120 basically for the year as as opposed to $16.99 for the month. So really, really good price if you go yearly. And if you do jump up to the premium plan, you will get this option to play original PlayStation 1 titles, PS2 titles, even PS3 titles and PSP. So, you know, titles from across PlayStation's entire history. Now, 
the, 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 the quality or the quantity here gets kind of subjective and even you know specifically with even PSP titles which is their PlayStation's handheld console they've ported maybe maybe two or three titles maximum so far because this whole new subscription service has only launched in Europe for the last two weeks or so so selection is limited but they have promised that as the months roll on you're going to get new titles added like they do with PlayStation Plus for the last number of years and like what Game Pass does for its monthly launches new games will be added to each tier you know for the essential tier you're getting your free titles like you used to originally with PlayStation Plus and then for your extra and your premium tier new titles will continuously be at, will continuously be added be it old PS3 titles that you can stream directly to your console and there's also the option to play these titles on your PC as well so it's not just limited to console but the PC functionality is leaves a lot to be desired too unfortunately for these extra tiers Okay. Um, in terms of the interface and I suppose jumping from game to game, how how user friendly is it? Have you noticed anything that you know needs to be ironed out beyond the PC performance? Yeah, so like when you sign up to the subscription service, either on your PlayStation 4 or your PlayStation 5, you jump you go to the usual kind of tile on your on your on your home screen and then you go through all the different options. It's slightly convoluted. I'm not sure if they're I would like to think they're still working through kind of the best layout options or the best way to make it as seamless or streamlined as possible because it's almost like an overload of information and there's multiple tabs showing you the same thing but just different ways to get to them. So it's kind of overly complicated for its own good. So I really do hope Sony kind of work on it to make it a bit more kind of I don't want to say idiot proof, but it's just more kind of user friendly so that you know exactly what you're looking at, uh, be it, you know, PS4 titles, PS5 titles, the older PS3 titles, which are streamable only or somewhat downloadable. So there's kind of it's a bit convoluted in that aspect. But look, at it, it's early days yet, as I said, and hopefully they can kind of work out some of those those kinks and some of those issues. So for gamers who are contemplating signing up, obviously there is the monthly option and that's probably a good way to go to see if you get full value out of any of the plans before signing up for the annual side of things. What's the tier that um, ticks most boxes from your point of view? I think, you know, I think the extra tier, the step up from the the essential tier, so the middle tier, the extra tier, is going to give the best value to, to gamers. And really the premium tier there is for diehard, old school, nostalgia seeking PlayStation gamers that want to play their PS1 titles on their PS5 or want to play, you know, PS2, PSP, as I said, or PS3 on PC or whatever it may be. Those are for the diehard, you know, want to play the old school classics that there's just no other real way of playing them. And, you know, they've got a PS4 or PS5 console at home. Um, It gives them that option. But really for general, you know, more mainstream gamers that want the value but aren't really don't really care about the old older titles the much older titles i think the extra tier there for 99.99 a year is the best value as i said you know when titles are already looking at like 80 quid on their own for 20 quid more you get you know or like two or three if not 400 titles to play to, to choose from at that tier and you know last time you were on with us you were talking through some of the titles that we can expect to see over the coming months Will all of the PlayStation ones that we've mentioned will they be instantly available to people if they sign up for PlayStation Plus well, yeah, it seems to be what I can see with what Sony are doing in in contradiction or in, co- in contrast to Xbox's day one releases. They seem to at least a year seems to need to go by before their AAA titles make make it anywhere near 
this their their kind of their PlayStation Plus subscription service because as I mentioned, their Returnal is one of the kind of standout titles for last year on the PS5. It was only on the PS5, not even on PS4. Got rave reviews and everybody loved it. And that was April, so now we're kind of in July, obviously. And it, you know when this whole new streaming, this new relaunch of PlayStation Plus was announced, Returnal was was kind of positioned as one of the flagship kind of titles that gamers can get access to if they sign up to either the extra or the premium tier. So. Yes, you, you know, the newer titles that are going to be coming out later this year, be it the, the relaunch of The Last of Us Part 1 or even God of War Ragnarok, which officially got its launch date just there earlier in the week uh, for November. I don't think gamers can expect to see those titles come onto this subscription service till late next year. So there is a kind of a delay when you can expect these kind of first party standout titles to come onto it. But as I said already, there's some already fantastic games there for gamers that never got the chance to pick them up when they originally launched, like Ghost of Tsushima, like the Spider-Man titles, and as I said, Returnal, Death Stranding, some really good first-party titles, and also third-party, like Guardians of the Galaxy is on there. That was a fantastic game from last year that I really loved. And then they have a, a kind of a, what would I say, a curated selection of Ubisoft titles called Ubisoft Classics or Ubisoft Plus Classics. Now, it gets even more convoluted if I go down this path, but just as a top line, Ubisoft have selected a number of their top titles and added it to the extra tier and the premium tier that adds even more value. So last year, or sorry, 2020's Assassin's Creed Valhalla, one of their kind of most successful games to date, the Viking game we spoke about for many times throughout the years on your show, is available on the extra tier and the premium tier as well, along with a number of other kind of top tier um, Ubisoft titles. So there's great value there too. That does sound good, but I was reading uh, earlier in the week just that, you know, the gaming industry is bracing itself essentially for a recession, that, you know, profits are not going to be good if at all existent uh, for this, for the next wee while. And so for new titles to to not be, you know, made available from day one on a streaming service that fans are going to be paying a monthly subscription for, you know, therefore expected to go out and spend 80 quid on top of a monthly subscription. Yeah. There's an element of, geez, are we being gouged a little bit here? Yeah, like it kind of like it depends. It all depends on patience and that what people are able to, are willing to wait. That's if, you know, the inevitability, there's no guarantee whatsoever that, you know, that uh, the first party titles, these these 80 quid titles will make their way to the service. It's it's assumed and it's kind of, it's a safe assumption, but you still can't ever guarantee when and if those titles will, those 80 euro titles will make their way to this, to this subscription service. Personally, with the, you know, with the number of titles that are there already and you pay, if you pay up for a year, you probably have more than enough to last you in a way that you can actually potentially hold out for those big titles, if you have the patience, be it the new God of War in November or whatever it may be, that's, you know, you look, you can go, if I have, I, I'm, 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 I'm patient enough to wait till next year when it will, you know, inevitably, fingers crossed, add it to the service. But sometimes they're like, no, look at the, re- the reviews are going to come in. It's assumed it's going to be a standout title. It's going to be spectacular. That gamers are like, God, I can't wait. I need to, I need to chip out, you know, you know, chip out the, 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 the extra 80 euro to lock in that title when it launches because it just can't wait. So, but again, it's really down to the, to the gamer if they have that patience or not. And so you, as we know, are, um, you're like an avid gamer. Do you think that you'd have the patience, like, will you be waiting for it to be added or do you still see yourself having both, like your cake, cake and eating it too? 
Yeah, see, I don't think I'd have the patience, unfortunately. And Sony, I th- yeah, I think Sony are aware of that because when these big titles come out, they're only on PlayStation. You can't get them anywhere else. And, you know, it's it's kind of like a, a movie going in, into the cinema. You go, will I, wait, will I go to the cinema and watch it or will I wait till it inevitably ends up on one of the streaming services? It's that kind of thing. Am I missing out? You, you see the rear reviews like Top Gun Maverick, for example, is hugely popular. I never actually ended up going to the cinema, but that's that's my own preference, but it's been because that movie isn't going to be added to a subscription service or a streaming service for a long time. So you're like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss out if I don't go now. So it's a game title is slightly different where it's like the second it launches in November, say, as I said, for God of War, I can pay the 80 quid on my couch and I'm playing it within a couple, you know, within a couple hours once it downloads. So it's a different thing but it's again it's a patience aspect so i don't think i will have the patience unfortunately mm. but when when times are tight for gamers and they can't be forking out 80 quid on top of these yearly or these monthly subscriptions it, i can understand that you know bottom lines are going to be impacted and when you know if people have the time to wait around knowing it's going to come they will wait around and they'll they'll, they'll get it inevitably and they, you know as part of the subscription so they won't you know sony won't be making that upfront um it's revenue stream as they used to now that they have this kind of all bells and whistles streaming service to offer gamers with with these first party titles and you know making their way to it slowly but surely yeah well look there's no doubt that uh, it'll be an interesting time ahead for the gaming companies uh, if you want to read a full review of playstation plus you can head over to the effect.net where john has all of his thoughts in one place uh, john as always thanks so much for joining us here on news talk thanks jess tech talk on news talk with vmware Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. If you want to get in touch, as ever, you can email me techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Now, if you're a Revolut customer, you may have noticed some changes in the last little while. Maybe you've been prompted to change your card or maybe you've just heard the change from Revolut to Revolut Bank. And maybe... You're like me, you're wondering, what exactly does that mean? Well, joining me now to discuss is Dara Cassidy of Bonkers.ie. Uh, Dara, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks for your time. Um, before we talk through the nitty gritty, let's start with that headline. What what difference does it make, you know, the move from Revolut to Revolut Bank? People may not notice a huge significant uh, difference from a day-to-day point of view, but without getting too technical, Revolut used to operate in Ireland under what's, so-called, what's called a so-called e-money license, uh, so not a banking license. So up until recently, Revolut wasn't a bank, at least not in Ireland. Now, it offered many of the services that you might consider a bank to offer, such as a you know, current account, being able to withdraw cash and send money, but it wasn't actually technically a bank. But a few years ago, it got a banking license in Lithuania and in around March of this year it then used that license or extended that license to Ireland so it's now operating as a bank in Ireland so we can op- we can offer more services uh, but also crucially it does mean that customers of Revolut are now protected by the government's deposit guarantee scheme which protects deposits up to uh, €100,000 per institution. Okay, so that all does sound very positive. Um, you mentioned other services. So does this mean then that, you know, Revolut is finally a proper contender to go up against the likes of some of the traditional banks that we've spoken about before? I, I think so. I mean, 
I would have argued that even before it moved over the banking license, it still was a good contender. But a question I would have always had from people would be the fear around the deposit guarantee scheme or you know losing access to your money. Now, I'm not one of those people, unfortunately, who has anywhere close to 100 grand in my account, but I could understand why people were concerned. So now that it has that protection and is officially a bank, um, I think absolutely more people will be likely to use us and have confidence in us as well. The other point is that now the services it can offer has increased. So Revolut is shortly going to start offering credit cards as far as I'm aware it has now started offering personal loans to some of its customers and it also recently launched a kind of a, a quite innovative buy now pay later product as well so it's getting into the credit sphere the credit area which is what you would you know traditionally associate a bank with and potentially in a few years time but I think it will be a good few years they may start offering uh, mortgages as well so um, I think it's good news for consumers and definitely puts I think the cat among the pigeons as it were uh, in Ireland I think the, the, the other banks now here will really have to start taking even more notice of Revolut. The one thing that I wonder is that you know will we start seeing Revolut introducing more and more charges because one of the big attractive offerings of Revolut when it first arrived in was essentially you know basically free banking the the charges in terms of taking out cash uh, sending cash to friends all of the really attractive elements were just there and very few of the traditional banks were in that sphere do you think that we're going to see any more sneaky fees appear on the on the radar in terms of revolut now that they've gone down the proper bank route I think we will, but not necessarily that they're going down the bank route, but the company has to make money. It is not a charity. And from what I can gather, I think it's yet to actually even post a profit. So we think of all of these people who use Revolut. It's always in the news. It always seems to be getting extra money from shareholders. It's the darling of the tech world. It's yet to make a profit, or at least it's only made a very, very small profit. So it's going to have to start finding ways to make money eventually because the shareholders are going to lose patience. And I think over the past maybe 18 months to two years, it has introduced some charges. Um, so it's introduced some charges around withdrawing cash. It's not quite so uh, liberal with the fee-free cash limit. It's um, even people on some of the pay or the premium plans, you know, when they go to maybe do stock trades uh, they don't have as many free trades or the commission has been has been increased but certainly i think it's main bread and butter which is uh, you know paying people or you know sending people money and making contactless payments and payments with your card will remain free i think for the foreseeable future but absolutely i mean it needs to make money and i think we probably would unfortunately see more fees and charges being added but it's still a really really competitive product it, it has a great offering and maybe if it starts introducing more of these loans and credit cards and, and, and credit products if it can make money there then that will certainly lessen its uh, need to start charging for the more basic things if that makes sense. So there's been a lot of movement and there is a lot of movement at the moment in the banking sphere here in Ireland. Some people who have never moved bank before are now being forced to move. Would you say that Revolut is an attractive option? And what are the key things that people need to consider when they're looking at, you know, what current account provider to move to? It 
has a great offering the same way N26 does, but it's definitely not the account for everyone. The first reason with Revolut is that you're still given a Lithuanian IBAN because as we discussed, it's operating here under a Lithuanian banking license, technically. And you do unfortunately still find people who have issues getting paid into their account or uh, selling up direct debits because the, the payment systems can't recognize the foreign IBAN. Now, that is beginning to become less of an issue, but it still is an issue. The other point is around withdrawing cash. Now, I rarely withdraw cash these days, but I know some people do. Even on the premium accounts, there's limits to how much cash you can withdraw. And with the free accounts, you only get, um, well, it, it, it's, a, it's a 200 euro that you can withdraw fee-free. And after that, a one euro charge or 2% fee is added, whichever is higher. So if you're the type of person who likes to withdraw maybe 10 or 20 euro a day to you know, buy your bits and pieces, it's not going to be the account for you. There's obviously no branches either. Now, I rarely step foot into a bank branch but I understand that there are some people out there who do like the comfort of being able to step into a branch there's still issues as well around customer service when people get locked out of their accounts they often end up having to chat with chatbot and then they end up banging their head against the wall so there are still a few things that would make you me say I couldn't definitely recommend us as someone's main account even though it is a brilliant account it would really come down to people's personal choices and their their personal preferences but just then then the second question as to what should people be looking for in a bank account the main thing is the fees so are you someone who doesn't want to have to pay a huge amount of fees obviously n26 and it revenues are great there but aib for example charges you for absolutely everything is customer service important to you do you need an overdraft so on post the credit union so the credit union does but on post and n26 and revolut don't offer overdraft so if you're an ulster bank customer with an overdraft and you want to keep us then these accounts may not be suitable for you um, the mobile app is obviously something that people will want to consider n26 and revolut absolutely lead the pack here um but as i said then you know when it comes to maybe taking out cash that it may not be the account for you so there are just a few things that people need to consider and there is definitely just no one perfect account that suits everyone every provider that offers a current account has its good points and its bad points so some of them might have a great mobile app but they have quite high fees others may not have a big bank presence and then some may not offer overdrafts so people just need to kind of sit down and think what it is do i want to the current account or a banking provider and then go from there Am I right in saying that there's no fee or penalty for having multiple accounts with multiple banks? So say, for example, if you want to use Revolut as your day-to-day banking account, you can do that, but you can still get paid into and save through a traditional bank account, for, for want of a better phrase. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the traditional bank accounts particularly AIB, Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSP, they all do charge you. So if you double up on bank accounts, you are going to be doubling up in fees and charges. AIB has a €4.50 Euro quarterly charge. Um, Bank of Ireland has a €6 Euro, uh, monthly charge. And then Permanent TSP has a €6 Euro monthly charge as well. Now, that might make you believe that AIB then is maybe the cheapest but AIB unfortunately then charges you for absolutely anything and everything so we're drawing cash lodgements direct debits whereas Bank of Ireland's six euro monthly fee includes all of your day-to-day banking and so does permanent TSBs and actual permanent TSB you can then get cash back of 10 cents every time you use your card in store or online so 
there's nothing to stop you having several different bank accounts if you want. But if fees and charges are important to you, I certainly wouldn't open up more than you know, two. For example, I have permanent TSB. It's, I pay my mortgage from it. Uh, and then I have Revolut as well. And for me, that's kind of enough. But, you know, I suppose different people would have different preferences. I know you guys at Bonkers often uh, encourage people to, you know, shop around and to move around. Are banks something that people should move around? Like I'm with Bank of Ireland, for example, so I pay that six quid a month fee. You know, should I, do you move around or is it, is banking one of those ones that you pick one and stick with it? It tends to be one, unfortunately, that people do the latter. They pick one and they stick with it. And that's why the banks know they can kind of get away with charging us stuff. I have changed before. So I put my money where, where, where my mouth is, although it was long before I started in Bonkers Dali. But I did move a few years ago from AIB to Permanent TSB when they brought in fees. Uh, I would recommend it absolutely, even you know for current accounts. Um, as I said, a lot of listeners may be with AIB. With AIB, you can easily rack up fees of eight, nine, 10 euro a month. Now, some people might say they don't care paying that it depends how much people want to seek out better value but you could go from paying as i said eight nine ten euro a month with um aib to paying practically zero with permanent tsb so if money is a, is an issue do look at switching look at switching your credit card look at switching your current account and then of course look at switching your mortgage so your mortgage is likely to be your biggest household expense your biggest household outgoing and it's really one bill that you don't want to overpay on now people aren't going to switch mortgage every year or maybe even every few years because it does take a little bit of effort but i certainly would say to anyone who's listening to the podcast or is listening on the radio, do look at switching mortgage at least once during the lifetime of the mortgage. Um, because it's crazy, you know, we we get obsessed with saving maybe 50 euro on our car insurance uh, over the course of a year. And like you could save maybe like, you know, 50 euro a month or maybe 200 euro a month on your mortgage if you were to switch. But, but it's not something that people do, although switching numbers are beginning to increase, which is good. Okay, well, no doubt uh, there is plenty of advice up on bonkers.ie for anyone looking for tips and tricks on any of the things that we have discussed. Uh, Dara Cassidy, as always, thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. You're welcome, Jess. Yeah, great tips as ever from Dara Cassidy of bonkers.ie. If you haven't used your Revolut account in quite a while, it is worth going into the app and seeing if your Revolut card is one of the ones impacted uh, as a result of this changeover. A number of people have been prompted over the last little while to update their cards. So their current cards are going to stop working Uh, at some stage over this summer. Uh, If you are impacted, you'll know. So if you go into the Revolut app, if you head on over to the cards section uh, and you'll get a little notification there, it'll either say order a new card for free or your card is about about to expire. If that is the case, if you just literally follow the steps uh, for ordering a free card, it is completely free. You don't even have to pay delivery. You just follow the steps on the screen and a new card is posted out to you. Then you need to activate it like you do any card um, by making a transaction on it using the chip and pin function or the pin function. Um, And it's as simple as that. It's very, very straightforward. Um, A lot of people, as I said, have been prompted to do it over the last little while. But if you haven't, Uh, And if you don't tend to use your Revolut account, it is worth doing just to ensure that if and when you do need to use your card, uh, it is fully active. So again, head into the app, uh, scroll over to cards and then follow the instructions on the screen.
Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we're going to meet the Irish startup looking to take pressure off the electricity grid and get drivers from A to B more safely. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, Board Namona has been running a program called Accelerate Green. It essentially is an acceleration program, giving a boost to startups that have a green slant. Last week on the show, we heard from Real Leaf Farm. And I'm delighted to be joined by a few more of those startups now. Uh, we're going to start with Epicensor and their CEO, Brendan Carroll. Brendan, you're very welcome to the show. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about your company? Sure, yeah. And uh, thanks very much for having me on, first of all. Um, so Epicensor designs and manufactures a range of uh, sensor products that are used um, for a few things, but uh, primarily uh, stabilizing the electricity grid. And the purpose of that is so we can uh, integrate more renewables onto the system. So renewables like wind and solar are obviously naturally intermittent and that they can be affected by weather conditions. And that's something new for the electricity grid. Uh, traditionally, um, as demand increased, um, the grid operators could just turn up the dial on a, on a traditional fossil fuel plant um, and, and meet that demand with additional supply. Um, but uh, that's not possible with renewables. So you can think of our sensors as a kind of safety net for the grid. Uh, that uh, They can detect um, problems on the grid remotely and react to that to um, move sites to backup generators or backup batteries um, and reduce the pressure on the grid at those times. And ultimately, uh, the, the purpose of that is so you can integrate re- more renewables and, and meet um, Ireland's uh, kind of um, targets for um, 80% of the supply in the electricity grid by 2030 coming from uh, renewable sources. Okay, so this is something that we've heard quite a lot about. I know Joe Lynham is constantly talking about this sort of stuff on Breakfast Business here on News Talk. But I don't mind putting my hands up and saying I don't fully understand this. I don't fully understand how it works. I don't fully understand how we can integrate those renewables into the grid. So can you just give us a bit of an insight into how it works and I suppose what we, the, the average consumer, need to be aware of? Yeah, um, so our customers are the end customers for our product, first of all, are, are typically large um, commercial industrial sites like, um, you know, manufacturing plants, pharmaceutical, medical device, data centers, um, hospitals, uh, that, that kind of thing. Um, so how it works is a piece of hardware, um, a, an electronics product uh, that we design and, and manufacture gets installed on these customer sites uh, and monitors the, the, um, the kind of health of the grid um, and and it does that by monitoring the frequency. Um, so the frequency, as uh, as you you might know, is is fifty hertz uh, in Ireland, and that is um, and it can be used as an early indicator of problems on the grid. So, um, and by problem, I mean an, an imbalance between supply and demand. So our sensors are out there on, on hundreds or thousands of, uh, of sites spread all over the country or multiple countries, um, essentially listening for this signal. Uh, and when it gets uh, detected or when they detect a problem, um, they are able to communicate with other systems on site, for example, backup generators or batteries, and, uh, and instruct those uh, systems to 
um, take some of the site's load away from the grid. So essentially moving the site off grid for a short period of time. Um, and uh, all of those sensors working together, uh, communicating over the internet, uh, eventually back to the grid operator, um, act as what's sometimes referred to as a virtual power plant. So uh, a power plant's job is to, um, uh, you know, generate uh, additional uh, electricity or energy on the grid. Um, but reducing energy usage or reducing the electricity consumption on many large sites together has exactly the same effect. So even though you're reducing energy, it has the same balancing effect as a power station would. So it's referred to sometimes as a virtual power plant. Um, so our sensors are, are, are used, we're the kind of technology platform uh, behind some of uh, some of these large deployments in Ireland and Taiwan and uh, other other countries, particularly islanded grids um, that that have targets to integrate um, high amount, high amounts of renewables, like Ireland does. Um, so this is one of many uh, mechanisms that will be needed to achieve the kind of targets that are coming down the track. And we know that those targets are in place. We know that there is the appetite and the demand for, um, I suppose, greener ways of doing things. Do you find that uh, the execution of what you're trying to do, like, are, are we getting the payoff? Is it as quick as we'd like in terms of the turnaround of the deployment of your technology, your solution? And, you know, that those results, whether that is from a customer bill point of view, and from an energy efficiency point of view? So one of the big problems um, or challenges with deploying uh, systems like this is that the technologies used for it kind of lived in um, power stations and very kind of complex industrial environments before. So you might have had, you know, tens of, you know, a quantity of tens of systems like this um, deployed throughout the country, um, whereas now what we're talking about is thousands of systems and for that change to happen um, the systems need to get simpler to use and they need to, to be lower cost um, and that sounds easy but it's actually it's actually a very very difficult problem so we're taking we're doing the same thing um, essentially as um, industry you know those industrial systems have done for for quite a while like grid protection systems but uh, we like to describe it as, as focusing on the user experience. Um, so making it as, as close to uh, possible as, uh, as anyone being able to take one of these products out of a box, deploy it in their, in their factory or their plant um, and join one of these grid support programs. Um, and end customers can get paid for providing that service to, uh, to the grid. So that's, that's really the, the, the kind of problem that we're focused on. As I mentioned there at the top, we heard from um, uh, Real Life Farm on the show last week who were taking part in the Board Namona Accelerate Green programme. How beneficial is it for a company such as yourselves to be connected to other companies looking to tackle, not necessarily uh, in the same way, but the same problem, um, which is, you know, protecting the environment and looking after your climate and all that kind of stuff. Is it beneficial to hear the other solutions that are out there and the other challenges that are out there and how people are overcoming them? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and you described it well there that even though the companies on this program have been in, in very different industries, the problems are kind of common. So the operational problems uh, are common. And it's, it, it has been an opportunity to, I think, correct um, uh, an opportunity to correct the uh, mistake I've made over the years in not 
plugging into a community like this. Um, so um, it, it has been extremely valuable to me uh, over the past six months or so to be part of this program. And also, um, also my my grandfather worked for uh, Bordemona for his whole career for about forty years. So uh, the, I've kind of always felt a connection to to that company from growing up around him. Well, it's nice to see it kind of coming full circle and indeed doing so in, in a green way and looking to provide solutions for the future. Um, in terms of what you got from the programme, was there one aspect of it that's been most beneficial to you? Yeah, I think um, there's been one or two. So first of all, just sitting in a room with, uh, with people, bouncing ideas and bouncing problems off them. Um, uh, there, there has been eight companies, um, some kind of, uh, you know, started quite recently and some uh, at a later stage of, of growth, uh, but there's a huge amount of experience, um, ha- has been a huge amount of experience in those rooms over the last six months. Um, that's been particularly valuable, but the uh, the quality of the speakers and the, the people presenting um, has been has been excellent. Uh, so the, the, the team organizing it uh, literally bought, brought in um, the best people in the country in their, in their areas, uh, and we got a chance to um, get advice from them and, and and talk about our strategies and it's it also time away from the, the routine and the office um, to to focus on on that stuff that that you really don't get unless you you literally disconnect and go somewhere else um, so um, extremely valuable for for those two main reasons yeah I think headspace and eye-opening conversations are always beneficial regardless of what it is that you do or you know what field you're working in um, look I wish you every success in the future that was Brendan Carroll CEO of Epicenter thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk Thanks very much, yes. I'm Mervyn O'Callaghan and I'm the CEO of Cameramatics. Mervyn, you're very welcome to Tech Talk. Can you just start by giving us a bit of an introduction to the company, please? Uh, thanks for having me, Jess. Yeah, so Cameramatics is a technology company which helps companies generally improve safety, improve operational efficiencies and ensure both their drivers and vehicles are compliant um, and we do that for companies who kind of operate their own commercial vehicles or who have a mobile workforce. Okay. And is the, is this, you know, software? Is it hardware? What way do, is it deployed? Yeah, so it's a combination. So we, we do a lot of integration into the vehicle. So we pull a lot of data from the vehicle itself and from the manufacturers. So we're heavily integrated into the vehicle. Um, but we also then install our own um, hardware. So that's a combination of kind of telematics devices and also camera technology. So I suppose to give a kind of a, a real life example, you know, we, we would have a lot of the autonomous driving type technology within our portfolio and within our software. Um, and really what we're doing is we're using all of that data and pulling all that data from the vehicles. Um, and providing real-time interventions to drivers, but also providing a lot of data and a lot of information back to the company owners to help them make decisions about improvements that they can make from an operational perspective, improvements they can make in terms of how the vehicles are being used and utilised, and ultimately, I suppose, to provide a safer environment for their employees and reduce accidents. Sometimes people get a little bit freaked out when they hear about uh, data being collected and sent back to the employer. What kind of things are are we talking about here, and in what way does it benefit the company to to know this information? So the so the amount of data there's there's a, there's a whole range of, of of data that we're capturing. So that's 
um, you know, engine engine data in terms of how the vehicle is actually performing. So making sure that the, the vehicle is actually safe and that there's, you know, there's no warning lights. There's, um, we're doing a lot of engine diagnostics where we have to pick up on particular faults kind of um, before they actually cause issue and potentially cause an issue for the, for the driver itself. Um, we're providing real-time information to the driver around, um, so we're using AI and camera technology to identify potential risks around the vehicle. And we're constantly feeding that back to the driver. So to give an example of that, we would have um, camera technology, which identifies vulnerable road users. So the likes of pedestrian cyclists, um, and we're constantly feeding that back to, to drivers, and particularly in commercial vehicles, where they have some of the larger vehicles, you know, they have huge blind spots in those vehicles. So you're providing real-time information back to the driver. From a company perspective, getting all that information and seeing how their vehicles are being driven and they're able to use that to improve driver coaching, to improve efficiencies. But I suppose also probably more importantly from a, from a company perspective, it's ensuring that they're protecting their, their employees and, you know, in the event of something happening, they're able to get that information and, and have earlier intervention in the event of an accident or something happening as well. And I understand that um, your solution also kind of promotes uh, eco-driving styles, which is something that's top of everybody's minds at the moment. How exactly does that work? Yeah, I suppose. And, um, you know, we've recently been on the Accelerate Green program and and, and really our participation in that was for us to um, help develop out our our kind of eco uh, product range. Um, so, you know, I suppose typically we've been very focused on safety and, and kind of operational efficiencies. Um, but as, as things have evolved and as corporates have become more aware of, you know, sustainability and also the requirements about having to report on that, um, we've looked at how we can use the data that we're capturing and actually use that to help companies I suppose, benchmark where they're at, but also introduce improvements over a period of time to actually start reducing their carbon footprint. Um, and as part of the, the actual program, one of the things we did is we actually developed a whole new product. Um, whereas our core product is very much focused on kind of scope one, so kind of direct emissions. Um, we've developed a whole new technology around scope three emissions, um, which we think is, is completely unique within the marketplace. Um, and can really help. It, it actually has a back-end automation system that will automatically generate reports based on the various different um, policies and targets that the company set. We're hearing a lot on, on every month here on Tech Talk, we're, we're talking to Derek Riley of the EV Review Ireland channel, um, the YouTube channel, and he's kind of talking through the new innovations that are happening within electric vehicles. How much of a crossover and an overlap is there between the technology on board many new vehicles and then what your solution offers? Uh, there's a huge crossover. Like ultimately, you know, an electric vehicle and the, you know, the use of the use of the um, of electric compared to petrol diesel is very similar. The biggest impact on that is the driver and how the vehicle has been driven. So we are also, as, as part of that new product line that we've developed, we're actually looking at how the actual charge, you know, when vehicles are being charged, how they're being driven, you know, excessive acceleration, braking, all uses additional charge, which can have quite an impact in terms of the range that mm -hmm. vehicles have. 
but also we're also using all of the, the telematics data and the location-based data for companies to identify out of your fleet and based on your normal day's operation, 20% of that fleet could be switched to electric at the moment because we're able to overlay information around where charging points are in that as well. Um, so we can provide a kind of a transitional plan for companies mm. but we can also say at the moment it's 20 percent. but if you actually addressed driving behavior and, and changed the way that the, the vehicles were being utilized that figure could be maybe 30 percent as well yeah i think as i said that's something that's front and center of the average consumer's mind but also people uh who run these companies the the, the fleet and the driver companies i think it's massively important uh, and i think all those insights are massively beneficial uh mervyn you were taking part as we mentioned uh in the board mona accelerate green program just if you can tell me briefly what was the highlight for, for you in terms of engaging with the others and listening indeed to the speakers yeah i think from the from a program perspective i think it was the um you know First of all, it was the group, you know, there was eight companies there and there was a lot of very open and, um, you know, a, a kind of it, when in a trusted environment, a lot of discussions or, you know, everyone's in, in, in different stages in terms of growth and, and trying to expand their business internationally. So looking at, at challenges other people were having and getting ideas and, and getting input from people. So I think that was really useful from our own perspective, you know, we, we were seeing our customers were starting to ask about sustainability, but we weren't really experts in that field. And it gave us a huge insight into what was happening on the global stage and what was happening kind of locally. And ultimately, as, as you know, there was different stages within the, uh, the program. But as we started looking at it, it actually helped us develop our new technology and our new product that we're actually offering from a sustainability perspective. So it was, you know, across the board, it, it had a huge impact on us as a business. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we really, really benefited from it. And um, I think ultimately we've ended up in quite a unique position because of the, the program and the, the information we gathered from that, the interactions we had with all the different speakers, the different mentors, the different uh, people that were involved. Well, look, it's great to hear what you're doing and the innovation uh, continuing. That is Mervyn O'Callaghan, CEO of Cameramatics. Thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks very much. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday morning. But in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your weekend.